Welcome to Akasha Talks, a podcast on consciousness, healing, and different ways to interact and weave those together, both old and new, to be able to get the most out of your life. I'm your host, Lance Baker, coming to you from Newcastle, Australia. Hope you kick back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome, Larry and Cheryl Elman. Excited to, to have you guys on. Like anybody in the hypnosis world, if you've been exposed to it, you should have heard of Dave Elman, who is Larry's father. There's two main camps to the modern hypnosis world. There's Elmans or Ericksonians. <laughs> and uh, me, myself, and most people I know seem to fit more in the Elman camp. So I'm excited to, to talk about some of your childhood growing up around this and ways you've been able to, to utilize this in your life. So, so welcome both of you. Thank you thank so you. much for inviting us and thank you very much for inviting us to come to Australia. We're very excited. Oh, so, so are we here. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to begin with, with hearing the, the story of, uh, of Dad how his, his start with vaudeville of uh, where, where he began with finding hypnosis and, and where that was in his life. My grandfather uh, was an amateur hypnotist primarily because the store he owned catered to uh, vaudevillians in theatrical supplies, so he got to know a number of uh, vaudeville hypnotists. Uh, so my father had heard quite a bit about it and had mixed feelings as to whether it worked. But my grandfather came down with cancer and was in extreme pain, and a hypnotist, probably a vaudevillian, came by and gave him hypnotic pain control. And this, for my father, was impressive as an understatement. He was just totally blown away by this. Uh, however, my grandfather died shortly after that. And when they were splitting up his belongings, my uh, father ended up saying he wanted my grandfather's library, which none of his siblings were interested in. So here you have this eight-year-old getting a pretty big set of hypnosis books, many of them well beyond an eight-year-old's comprehension, and just starting to read them. Then he began going around and asking the various doctors such questions as, why do all these books have eyes as part of an induction? What's special about the eyes? And a number of other questions and a number of things from the books. And finally, he began experimenting on uh, his classmates. And he was on the playground steps of the Fargo, North Dakota Junior High School when he decided to try, put a subject under, immediately emerge them, put them under again and emerge them, what we today call fractionation, but the word didn't even exist. He tried it and the person went almost immediately into somnambulism. My father was very pleased with this, but also kind of amazed. I mean, he thought it was possible, but holy smoke, I did it. So he called over another playmate, did it again. Same thing happened. When he'd had three in a row, he decided, I have a new induction. Mm. And he proceeded to use that on his classmates 
for quite a while until he went to use it on a young lady he was trying to date, and her father became extremely upset. <laughs> and my father had a choice of his love life or his hobby. <laughs> that stopped hypnosis for a while. Now, because my grandfather had passed away, my grandmother's running the store, and all of the siblings in the family are working because the only way they can make ends meet. Hmm. Now, you've, I'm sure you've heard of uh, kids saying in uh, teenage frustration, if you don't do it my way, I'm going to run away and join the circus. And none <laughs> of them ever do. Well, my father's line was, I'm going to run away to vaudeville, but he did. <laughs> and so at age 16, he was in vaudeville. Now, in vaudeville, every vaudeville performer is an understudy for somebody else. If Joe comes down with a cold, Tom does his act. So dad was an understudy for all sorts of people, and it's how he came to be pretty good in the entertainment field. The one thing that doesn't have an understudy usually is the stage hypnotist. So my father volunteered for that. After all, he'd, he'd done quite a bit in the junior high school, and he quickly found that the stage hypnotists of other vaudeville troops were more skilled than he, because they'd done it more, but he knew more of the theory, because he'd read it more. Mm. So he set up to make a trade with them. You show me your craftsmanship, I'll show you why it works. And this allowed him to expand and to increase his knowledge, and he was fairly well-respected stage hypnotist when vaudeville went broke. Why did vaudeville go broke? Because of the advent of cheap movie theaters. My father finds himself in New York with no job, no money, and New York is very anti-hypnosis, so he sure ain't going to make his living that way. <laughs> and he therefore begins making his living with other things he'd learned in being in the vaudeville troupe singer, stand-up comic, musician, whatever he could get. In the middle of all of this, he starts being a songwriter for W.C. Handy. If anybody is a uh, student of jazz, they'll recognize the name. W.C. Handy was a major figure in the development of jazz in America. Anybody working for W.C. Handy, when it came to copywriting his songs, they were copyrighted as if written by Handy himself. If you've done a specific, very, very excellent job, Handy might sometime allow you to have the copyright in your own name. I have the copyrights on Dad's writings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Atlanta Blues is one of his. And... Uh, oh, Papa. Oh, Papa. Uh, and a whole bunch of them. I'll have to get you send me that list. I love jazz so, and blues. So oh, okay, okay. I'll, we're we're going to have to I'll, touch bases on this. I'll, I'll be at any rate, uh, by this point in his life, my father had a strong ambition that he wanted to be in radio. Radio wouldn't have the anti-hypnosis bias. It was a new technology. He saw it as a good place to go. So he went into radio. Uh, he became, within the radio community, fairly famous and well-known, but not to the general public, because he was usually the writer, the director, so on and so forth. 
One about that time, my eldest brother passed away due to uh, pneumonia, and my parents went into a severe depression, and he couldn't shake it. And somebody, I believe it was one of my uncles, I even think I know which uncle, but it hasn't come down in detail in the family legends, told my father, well, the only way you're going to get out of the depression is to invent a radio show that is so unusual and so complex that everybody will tell you it couldn't possibly work and you make it work. And my father said, well, I can try that, but what do we do for Pauline? She's as depressed as I am. And my uncle replied, ah, she's only a woman, just get her pregnant. You can relate to this, Lance, yes? <laughs> I didn't do it to solve depression. <laughs> <laughs> and you can imagine when I tell this, I have to be careful what audience I tell it to, because otherwise some, some people in the audience will feel that I'm being sexist and I'll be in trouble. It was sort of like the time, but I have to tell you, this is the fetus from that pregnancy. Yeah. That, that's a pretty good story to start with. You started ending depression. <laughs> that's a good start. I never thought of that. That's really great. Larry, did you make an ailment? Anyhow, the radio program he came up with was Hobby Lobby, mm. which was very famous and ran very, very successfully for 10 or 15 years. And it was of such importance that when my father had to have a gallbladder operation, the wife of the president, the first lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt, took time off from Washington to come up and sit the radio show till dad got out of the hospital. Wow. And yeah. online, there is a, um, an actual uh, diary, her journal from when she was the first lady, and it's called My Day by, Eliz uh, by Eleanor Roosevelt. And if you go in and you uh, you search Dave Elman, there's I think two or three times she talks about her emceeing the show. Oh, I'm gonna have to go read those. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. He, he really hit that mark of of what you said that they said come up with something unique that no one's done with that show. I've I've tried to think about it in my head. How could you make a show that works so well to a live audience? but also to people on the radio where they can't see it. That's, that's a big that's, plus for a variety show. That's the trick. That's yeah. the whole point. That's why it was so successful. And if you think about it, that's also where he was unknown to him at the time, practicing up for what he did in medical hypnosis later. Yeah. If you can get a split audience to react simultaneously, it means that you're handling your verbiage, your body language, and everything else in a manner that causes a slight delay on one side and a slight speed up on the other, and you get both of them laughing at the same time. So during our course, uh, we'll, we'll listen to at least one segment of Hobby Lobby, um, where you get to hear how he's doing it. And there's certain excitement in his voice that draws in the radio audience, and he's actually very quickly repeating or what he's seeing, he's actually doing reflective listening, but out loud, you know? Uh, so he's like watching, he's describing and keeping both sides engaged. So it's really interesting to listen to. Mm. 
Yeah, I imagine it will be. To give you an idea of some of the guests he would have on there, there was a guy who collected woodpecker holes. He didn't want the woodpeckers. He didn't want the nests. He didn't want the eggs. He wanted the holes. <laughs> what do you want a woodpecker hole for? He, he would work with them and make them into art objects. Wow. Then there was the, uh, the man who collected other people's stationery. You'd get a letter from Senator so-and-so, and you'd open it up, and it was a note from this guy and not from the senator. So it was practical joking. Today, people don't have letterheads because no. it's just it combined into our word processing. But I was a printer in New York back in the uh, 80s and uh, a printing broker. And, you know, all the companies uh, worked in the World Trade Center and Uptown and all these banks and commodity firms, and everybody had their own stationery. You went and had them printed. And there were several ways of doing it. Uh, so all the offices would have a box with their stationery, their business cards, everything. And, and this guy would go in, talk to the people, and either ask for it or just grab a piece of stationery and, and, uh, and keep it. Keep it and use it for a practical joke. <laughs> you know, that's sort of in my family. What we do is take used greeting cards We've done this before. You know, you keep your greeting cards, happy birthday, happy anniversary. And then one day, you know, you just sort of take them out and re-sign them or just recycle them or <laughs> redo the name and just send them back. And, and that's sort of cool. So that's sort of fun, too, you know, yeah. because then you also get to remember the first time. Yeah. You know? so. Uh, so, and then there was the lady who taught, who taught kangaroos how to box. Oh, that's where all the cartoons had the boxing kangaroos from, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I, that, that, that I'm sure Aussies would love to hear about. Also, there was one in December of 1938 that was done, and uh, it was the week after Larry's birthday, and the lady collected prams, you know, baby carriages. Back then, we all had baby carriages, and you went out with your kid, and usually they were laying down. They weren't these folding umbrella uh, um, strollers that we had and uh, so she she came to show off some of her prams and then right there she announces um, to to celebrate the birth of your son and everybody always asks Larry what the H stands for and he'll never tell anybody but if you listen to that Hobby Lobby they announce they reannounce his birth for the second time so the week before they announced it and this and that time they announced it, and you get to hear what that H is. You weren't supposed to tell that. <laughs> anyway, so. <coughs> so. Luckily, I haven't watched that one, listened to that, so I'm not going to announce it for everybody here today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well. Your secret's safe with me, Helen. <laughs> at, the, at the point where TV. What did you just call it? Helen, I was joking. <laughs> okay, I, I, I knew it was an H. Okay, Helen. I, I was ignoring it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Finally, TV comes along, and that, of course, bankrupts radio. Mm. And my father tried to put Hobby Lobby on TV, and it wouldn't go. And it was years that I kept repeating what my father said about he couldn't understand why. And finally, she and I were on a trip to uh, Florida, and we happened to run into the, the young, what had been the young man, 
who lived downstairs from me when we had an apartment uh, in New Jersey. So he'd be my age, so rather senior citizen. We run into him and we became friends and we're having dinner one night and I mentioned this to him and he looks at me, he says, think about it, Larry. On TV, who wants a balding, fat, short, old guy? Because if you think about all the people that ran shows back then, they were younger, they were tall, they were thin, they were the exact opposite. So when other people tried to create the Hobby Lobby, they didn't have Dave's personality to be able to carry it off. Yeah. You know, and, and so it just didn't work there. They were able to see it and it didn't work as well as what he created with people not being able to see it, just visualizing in their mind what was going on. Mm. So I think that's really interesting that it couldn't be done because they did try it a couple of times with other MCs. And, and in that point, in that, that uh, time period of TV, a lot of the shows were variety shows. A variety show is basically a vaudeville show set to TV. And I would sit with my father as these were going on, and many of the leading uh, hosts of these shows would do something, and they'd make a slight mistake, and my father would say, Damn it, Ed, I taught you better than that! <laughs> because they'd all served their apprenticeship under Dad. Oh. So at that point, my father went back into doing stage hypnosis because you got to feed the family somehow. And one day, a committee of doctors come up to him and say to him that they want him to teach a medical hypnosis course. And he says, I'm not a doctor. I may know hypnosis, but I don't know anything about medicine. And they said, yes, but we've been watching your stage hypnosis. And you have three things that are absolutely necessary for hypnosis in medicine. So we want you to teach a course. And my father says, how do you know that? They said, all of us have taken courses in hypnosis and been unable to use it in a doctor's office. Well, what do I know that you don't? First of all, all the courses we've taken use 20-minute inductions. A physician needs a two- or three-minute induction. That's what you're doing. Second of all, all the courses we've taken say, well, you'll be able to induce 60% of your, of your patients. That's unacceptable to a physician. You're getting virtually 100%. That's of interest. And third of all, when you give a post-hypnotic suggestion, it takes. From the viewpoint of a doctor, a post-hypnotic suggestion has to have the same reliability as the pill you get at the local drugstore. When yours take, that means you're of interest to us. So based upon those three things, Dad began teaching medical hypnosis. But he said at the very first lesson, of the very first time he gave the course, I don't know medicine, you do. You don't know hypnosis, I do. I'll teach you what I know, but while I'm teaching you, you show me how it can be used in your area. You teach me while I teach you. The way he taught his class, how he'd, he'd set up a circuit and he, he'd do a 10-week class going around right. the town so that he'd set him homework, come back. He changed how he taught based on how all these doctors around the country 
were utilising what he gave them the last time he was in town. That's a fantastic approach. Yes, it has some advantages that unfortunately we can't do. One advantage is since the doctors are seeing you once a week, they've got six days in between during which they practice. The result is he's seeing rapid improvement from lesson to lesson. Also, because unlike some beginning hypnotists today, they don't have finding people to practice on is more difficult. So the doctors already had a working practice. So they got to practice maybe not on every patient, but quite a few patients during the week, you know, for a a lot of different reasons, you know. And so, um, and, you know, they already have this level of credibility, I think even more so. I think doctors were more on a pedestal back in the 50s than they are today. So we listened to them and, you know, we took them at their word. And that was part of what Dave is a phenomenal hypnotist because he had confidence, because he had credibility. But more than anything is people would come in to his class when the doctors brought their patients sometimes to work on or the nurse or their or their wives here, here they're learning, you know, that this is the guy that's teaching their doctor. He must be really good, you know. And so they, they're coming in with that expectation, you know. So and and that makes a big difference also in the, in in your numbers. And also he had confidence and the expectation within himself. Of yeah. course they're gonna go. Yeah, and he has prestige in the the suggestion with that that they're already pre-hypnotized beforehand. And the doctors have that as well of when they're going out to practice, they've already got prestige with their clients. So it, it had a, a snowball effect, I, I can, I can yes. really see. But I've, I've got to give it to Dave of growing up where, where he did and at the time he did with the education that he would have had, especially going out in vaudeville as a teenager, he obviously wasn't university educated. He wasn't even high school. He never yeah. finished high school. Back then, he was born in 1900. Many people did not finish high school. He obviously did really well with educating himself to to get places. I'm assuming from when you were saying about the uh, fractionation, how he'd worked out to do that in the schoolyard. Um, I'm assuming he's read Bernheim and made some links of, well, let's just speed this process up. (laughs) No, that's exactly where he got it from. And in fact, as I mentioned, the word fractionation hadn't been invented yet. My father and all of his classes referred to fractionation as three trips to Bernheim. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that was literally what he called it. Mm. And that was another good thing because um, in our course that we're going to be doing with you, we're going to be playing some of the recordings of Dave. And there is one of the recordings where he describes how he deduced all of that from the Bernheim book, uh-huh. you know, and, and you get to hear his thought process and how he got there so it was very cool mm, it's uh i've got the book here somewhere it's it's a pretty hefty book for somebody to to read who who's young and doesn't have a huge education so but i re- once remarked uh i was with um shelly uh shelly stockwell nicholas you may know shelly yes or you know of her yeah yes i was with her at a conference she was running and the question of Bernheim came up, and I said kind of embarrassedly, 
I've started the book many times, but I've never been able to get through the whole thing. <laughs> I said this with embarrassment because I'm in the midst of a bunch of very good professional hypnotists. And Shelley looks up and says, I got the same problem. I wasn't able to finish it either. <laughs> it just backs up what you just said. But it is a tough read. Yeah. Can you imagine a kid, by the time dad hit that one, he's probably 10, a 10-year-old trying to get through Bernheim? Yeah. So, so, like, even though Dave did not graduate high school, he, like Larry, Larry's got 22 bookcases filled with books in this house. Just in this room alone, there's 12. And a lot of history, a lot of uh, world history, a lot of aviation, na uh, naval, I mean, you name it, and fiction. So, uh, in fact, your minor was in literature, wasn't it? Elizabethan literature. Yeah, so aeronautical engineer and Elizabethan um, literature. That's quite the... The, the, yeah. So, uh, so Dave also, so Dave also was an avid reader, had lots of books, and he was a real Civil War buff as far as the history. So he also was very into history, into history as the story of people, which is what Larry also is. So he was very well uh, self-educated. My father also never finished high school, but well-read, well-educated, always had his own businesses and was a whiz at math. Mm. So, you know, I think I think there was more of that back then than possibly today. You know, today we go to school. Well, he must have really carried it well because doctors these days have this prestige of what they expect from an educator now. And I know back then it was even more the case that you had to hold yourself quite well to be able to get their respect, to sit there and listen to you for, for quite a while. <laughs> so he obviously looked into to medical things as well and, and made sure he was on top of the ball before he, he walked into some of those rooms. He always carried with him a medical dictionary. I have the last one he carried. He may have carried more than one. I thought it was the first one, but I look at the date and it probably wasn't. Uh, but it's a, it's a hefty, several-pound book. It's not, you know, light thing, big. He always carried it to class. If a word came up in class that he didn't know solidly, he looked it up immediately. And there are words that today we use that had slightly different meanings in the 1950s. And there are a number of places where we use the word in the way Dad taught it, and have to go and say the definition of that word at the time my father first used it is thus and so, and quote from the dictionary because there have been changes in language. Mm -hmm. But he always carried that with him. That, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, it's, it sounds, you, sounds like him. A point, a point where you, I, and Cheryl are probably similar, and that is if you love learning, you love history as well as technology, as well as whatever, you're, you're fairly broad. Mm. I was working on a doctorate in aerodynamics and the aerodynamics prof stopped the class one day and said, I want all of you to write down on a piece of paper what profession you'd have been in had you been born a hundred years earlier than you actually were. You all did so and handed them in. You know what all the aerodynamicists studying for a doctorate 
broke down, designing clipper ships. <laughs> now think, of, think about the beauty of a clipper ship. Think of its effect on the economies of the time. Think about the romance of it. Yeah. And air. And, and the study of air. It's, yeah. Still it's so clear, you know? So I, I think people tend to pick as their, as their love something that you can see a, a, a um, continuity across these various uses. Yes. And my father's love for history and his love for hypnosis and so on and so forth all form a pattern. Mm. By the way, the love for, for history, he was about 12, 13 years old, and he was a uh, an ice cream hawker at the local vaudeville theater. That's how he always got in free. And he had to bring his homework along one night, so he's sitting, doing the homework, waiting for the intermission when he'll start selling the ice cream. And he looks up kind of disgusted, and he says, ah, history, it's a pain in the whatever. He says, who cares about the Battle of Bull Run? And his boss, one-legged man, looks up and says, I care about it. It's the last place I saw my leg. <laughs> and Dad just stopped. And suddenly, the history book was not a book he had to study. It was a meaningful description of humanity. Mm. So he stopped and he talked with the one-legged theater owner found out what it was like to have been around during Abe Lincoln's election, what it was like to be at the Battle of Bull Run, what it was like to then be a cripple but still in the Army during the remainder of the war. And he learned all these things, and he became a, a history advocate. Hmm. And he'd always tell that tale early in his teaching hypnosis because he wanted his students to get the idea that every bit of learning you can get can affect every other bit of learning. So it was wonderful being the son of such a man. Mm. Yeah, if you know where you've been, you know where you can go. Right. So if you, you know your, your history of whatever field you're in, there's going to be extra things you can find. Like hey, fractionation wouldn't be here the way it is. If he hadn't looked at the history with Bernheim and gone, well, this guy's come up with this. How about we do it faster? Drop them in and out straight after one another rather than notice this pattern that people go deeper after a bunch of sessions. Exactly. Now, do you mind if I get you to rewind part of your story to back to Hobby Lobby with the day that your mum and yourself found out your dad had a history with hypnosis himself? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> This is one that I really, I get a kick out of telling this one. My, uh, my parents, like any parents of the time period, would get into a discussion in the front seat of the car when they thought the kids in the back seat were asleep, which the kids in the back seat usually weren't. And the result is the kids were always learning things that the parents didn't expect them to. So we were driving either to or from New York, uh, either before or after a show, and folks thought I was asleep. And they got to discussing what would happen if they, uh, if the show ticked off the sponsors. In those days, a sponsor could cancel a show on very little notice. And if they did, the people producing the show were immediately out of work. 
bingo, you no longer have a job, and maybe you don't even have a career. So they were discussing this, and they were very concerned because there had been some uh, some difficulties with one of the sponsors. So I hear this. Then we go into the theater, and one of the uh, one of the acts on Hobby Lobby that day was to be a hypnotist. This particular hypnotist screws up his act. Less people go in than should. Those who have been hypnotized do not take the suggestions properly. They self-emerge. The whole thing is a screw-up. And finally, my father steps forward and says, Mr. Jones, you've done a superb job. Why, I bet these people would even take suggestions from me. And the hypnotist who is, he just wants out of there. It's been that bad a day. Because all of you, the next voice you hear will be Mr. Elvin, do whatever he says. And he goes running off stage. Dad immediately starts into an old-time vaudeville show which at that age I didn't recognize that that's what it was, but thinking back on it, I, I know it was an old-time vaudeville show, and of course, duck soup for him. He's done them before. He gets through the, the evening, and he's saved the show. We don't have to worry about the sponsor on this one. It went well. We leave at the end of the show, and we go to the place where the car has been parked, one of these uh, vertical garages in New York, and we're standing there waiting for them to retrieve the car, which is the top of an elevator. And my mother suddenly puts both hands on her hips and tilts her head to one side. And anybody in the family knows if my mother gets into that position. She's about to ask an embarrassing question. And she says, so, Dave, how is it that you know more about hypnosis than the hypnotist? And that's what he had to admit that he'd been a stage hypnotist and that when he was courting her, he'd never told her that and he'd never told his in-laws to be that because there was so much anger against hypnotists in New York. He wanted her, not the career. And that was when she first learned it. When Larry was little, his dad, um, when back in the days of Hobby Lobby, actually they lived in a mansion at the time. And when he was maybe, what, five, six? His dad used to pay him a nickel a shelf. Remember I said he had oh, a lot yes. of bookshelves. Yes, uh, yes. A, a nickel a shelf to dust the shelves of the books, which also probably brought his love of books because he was handling them, he was looking at them. And uh, he was also learned how to read really young because well, he was- Well, wait a minute. Wait, I, I, I only got the nickel if they went back in the same order and none of them went in upside down or backwards. Right. Which meant I had to know my alphabet at age five or else. Which you did anyway, because he really loved the airplane books and nobody would read them to him anymore. So um, so he would go to the library. He got his own library card and he was allowed to choose the books outside the children's department. So he would be able to look at the airplane books because he always was an airplane buff. So he was dusting them. And behind one row, there was another whole row of books behind it that was hidden and he didn't think anything of it and would dust those and put it well, back. No, I thought something I it. I thought, this is weird. Dad doesn't usually do it this way, but what the heck? I'll dust them and simply add them to my bill. So he just double double charged that shelf. But it was later on that he was sitting and realizing that most likely those were the hypnosis books yeah. hidden behind the other books because they did a lot of entertaining. 
you know, back then you, when we'd look at books from back then, uh, some of them had receipts in it, you know, the few that we have still, and they were from occult bookstores. That's where you would find things on hypnosis. You know, Usually the witchcraft. in the witchcraft section. Sometimes it still is now. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, first section I look at if I walk into a, an old-fashioned bookstore that I'm not familiar with the people. So, you, you know, Pauline worked with Dave in the Hobby Lobby. That was a partnership, too, because uh, they would, she would help choose uh, which of the acts, and, and they would plan it together. And so they were very involved in working together. And then when he started the hypnosis and he was traveling, she traveled with him. And she got to be quite a good hypnotist on her, uh, by herself. And in fact, one time they were doing some practice sessions and there was a bigger line in front of Pauline than in front of Dave. And Dave asked, what's going on? And Pauline said, and, and, and uh, the doctor said, well, Dave, you know, you're good, but she is the much better teacher and practitioner. And she was really good at teaching. So here it is, Larry and I go out and teach together too. Yeah, and it's Larry, but I've, I've heard quite a few people say that Cheryl does Dave Elman induction better than you or Dave. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think it's better than Dad, but it's definitely better than I. I've come up with more modifications for this day and age. Uh, I do want to ask you a question now, Cheryl. I want, I want you to tell a story of that parallel of the surprise for the wife to find out about this history of hypnosis uh, of the importance of it within somebody's life and the skill that they've had. Yeah. Well, I originally met Larry. We met actually at Office Depot and that's a whole story. And, and um, he had a little computer company and he started out as being my computer consultant. And in short, I decided it was cheaper to marry him than to keep paying for consultancy. So I knew he did that, and I knew he had been an Air Force colonel and an aeronautical engineer. I knew all this about him. And um, when we were getting married, he went to a nutritionist, and she wanted to see me. We were just dating at the time, actually, still. And so I went with, and, and he actually, I think the, the, um, the time before that, when he had gone without me, he was looking at her uh, a diploma from Jerry Kind who used to be in Fort Lauderdale area uh, from Omni Hypnosis, uh, made out to her for hypnosis. And so she's looking at him, looking at the diploma and, and she's going, Elman, Elman. And then she looked at him, is that, is there any? And he goes, yeah, that was my father. So now she has this in her head. So the day she had me come in with him, since I was doing a lot of the cooking, she wanted me to understand because I love Larry and he is a rocket scientist, but when told he needed to eat protein, he had to ask, what's a protein? <laughs> and she goes, something, well, if it, if, it, if it had a mother, it's probably a protein. So, I mean, he really didn't know. I mean, what he knows in aviation was really lacking when it came to nutrition. So she had me come in because I was preparing a lot of the food, food or we'd go out to um, restaurants, so I had a better understanding to help guide him, which he did. He lost uh, 82, eight, pounds. 82 pounds seeing her. And so... <laughs> to be blunt, 
I would not have lost anywhere near that much if I hadn't had her help. Yeah. We we love the dietitian and she did me a lot of good, but she needed an assistant. Yeah, I need and somebody doing that for me. So anyway, uh, so when we were there that day, she she had been doing ballroom dancing, and then she had hurt herself, and she wanted to go back into it, but she was afraid, uh, you know, that she was going to hurt it. It was either her leg or her back, yeah. Yeah. and and so she asked him to hypnotize her, and I just looked. I said, "What?" I said, "He doesn't know how to do." It. Oh yeah. So I went out, and he hypnotized her. And she did go back to ballroom dancing. And so when I got out in the car, I said, what do you mean? What is it with this hypnosis? You know, and so he explained a little about his dad. And that was basically it. It wasn't until um, now I had known about hypnosis because I had stopped smoking a few years earlier than that. Um, maybe I don't uh, I think it was maybe uh, six years earlier than that. Um, up in New York, I had been hypnotized. I was two and a half to three and a half packs a day. So, uh, and I got hypnotized and never smoked again. So that came and went. And then it was when Sean Michael Andrews uh, came to interview Larry about his dad. And he found him through his little computer company and my arts and craft company that he had a division about aviation, 100 years of flight in down in Florida. And he tracked us down to up here and came and interviewed him. And he stuck my hand to the table, he stuck my hand to my head, and I went, I wanna do this. So that's so I, so he trained me, and at the same time, we started going to our first conference. And that's when we had no idea. I mean, he knew his a lot of people read his dad's book, and he would get some inquiries occasionally, but when we went to the conference is when we realized how how widespread and how popular Dave Elman's teachings were. So that was like a real surprise for me. And so I've been sitting through classes for years with Sean Michael Andrews, Jason Lynette. We taught one with Jason Lynette, Larry. So I've I've absorbed a lot over the years too, which I love it and I love it. And I love playing with it, you know? Uh, you just never know what you could do. So. So I enjoy teaching with him, and I also enjoy presenting. So it was like just recently in New York, at HypnoBiz New York, uh, somebody asked me, can you create catalepsy of the tongue? And I thought about it. I said, well, why not? I said, you want to try? So I did. And so now I've added that into my repertoire. If you can't do the eyes, try the tongue. <laughs> so, I mean, it's fun to have fun with it. It is. Uh, I, I just find it fascinating. There's that parallel of story between between mom and Cheryl. That's uh, a generational thing. When I realized how parallel it was in uh, recording a, an album I put out, uh, Dad's work and my work, I devoted an entire track of that album to comparing Cheryl and my mother and describing what a good hypnotist my mother was and how proud I am of Cheryl. So, yeah. But it is interesting. And my parents, actually, my dad always had his own business. And my mom was the bookkeeper and did some of the work for him and, you know, kept the books and stuff. So I was used to, you know, my parents working together, although she also had other jobs. And, and so that was, you know, similar. But I wish, you know, we, we don't have, the, we're traveling. 
we travel the world. We've taught in 17 countries thus far, but and adding five new ones this year, um, all if everything goes right. But we still miss that continuity of, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, the traveling we do, and mind you, they were traveling in a car before a highways existed. They were on back roads and, you know, like uh, Route 66. And, you know, so they, I mean, and they would go a few hours between each city. So they would create the circle here. And then they would go and create 10 weeks later, a circle over here. And then it's at one point they did a two week, a, a, a double rotation. So then it was two weeks between classes because they did an inner circle and an outer circle and came back. So each hotel expected them. They were like, it was like, um, you know, uh, they they would come regularly, so they were expected. They would get mail there. I, I got to insert when it's not connected with hypnosis, but it may show the sense of humor in our family. <laughs> I know the story. <laughs> <laughs> I moved out of the dorm and moved in with with a roommate into a tar paper shack. This, this is a, in Boston in the in winter. Boston in the winter, in the middle of a. Pretty bad winter. I mean, everybody's got to do something crazy, and that was my uh, my contribution. So we're living in a tar paper shack and commuting to school. And one night, just after I've gotten uh, ready for the shower, and all I've got on me is my underwear. And my roommate remarks on the fact that there's a rip in my underwear. And I said, ah, I'll probably throw this away later. And I yanked the... Um, Elastic. Elastic band, and it snapped, and the result is this torn underwear gets around me. Like a gladiator? Like, no, more like a, a Tarzan. You've seen the pictures of the... I looked like Tarzan, and just at that moment, one wall of the tar paper shack goes down into the snow outside. So he runs out, lifts it up, and I start hammering, trying to put enough nails in to hold it up. And he comes in from outside, and I've got my back to him because I'm hammering away at the thing, and I'm in this Tarzan costume, and he snaps a With picture, a bare butt. Snaps a picture of me. So when the picture came back, I thought it's so hysterically funny. I had the photographer reprint it on a postcard size uh, piece of cardstock. And on the other side, I wrote the address of the hotel my folks would be in the following week and the place on a postcard where you can put a message. I wrote, mom, send money fast. Love Larry and nothing else. <laughs> and I mailed the card. <laughs> so my parents do what they always did when they came to a hotel they were going to teach in. That is they parked out front and they asked the, uh, the bell captain to send X number of guys to, take out the stuff they'd need in the uh, in the ballroom, which was the classroom, and take the other things up to the hotel room and whatever. And then they start to walk into the hotel to register. And as they come into the lobby, every member of the entire hotel staff is lined up, a line all the way to the registration desk, all of them with perfectly straight faces and all of them almost at attention. There's looking, 
what the heck's going on? She walks up to the registration desk and the girl at the registration desk says, yes, Ms. Selman, we have some mail for you. <laughs> and hands her the postcard, which I'm sure everybody in the hotel had seen before their arrival. <laughs> but it was the fastest check I ever got from my folks. <laughs> Among the things that we're going to be teaching is uh, not just the history uh, of the Dave Ellman induction. Not only will you learn the induction, a lot of people see it as a script. You're going to be learning it as a process. And during that process, um, at the steps with variations, you know, so you understand the process. You can work client centered with whoever you need. Also taking that Dave Ellman induction and doing troubleshooting. What happens if their eyes pop open? What happens if their arm is not relaxed or if they can't lose the numbers? What are other options to do? Also, how to use the Dave Ellman induction in group settings, whether your group is right here physically or whether you're in groups on the internet or working individually on the internet. How do you adapt it so you can still get in those steps so you can still get those tests convincers and deepeners. So that will be part of it. And you'll get to practice those things, which is important. It's not just listening to it, but you know, uh, this way you have time to really work it out and, and uh, work with different people. Uh, we'll also be doing talking about hypnoanalysis versus hypnotherapy. You know, where does one begin, one end? People always say, let's regress to cause. Well, that's great. Now you're there. What do you do with it? You know, what kinds of things, you know, the Elman stuff is great, but also can be blended with other things I use. I think if Dave were alive today, he would have continued creating this evolution of his course because working through the doctors and having them do field testing, things were changing. Larry took the course three times and there were different renditions and new things each time he took it. So what would it be like today if Dave was there? You know, and people have modified, you know, like Jason Lynette's modification of the DEI is great, you know, because I love the way he brings in a little bit more permissive into it. So it's not as, you know, you're going to lose the numbers 10 times deeper, you know, double as opposed to as much as 10 times deeper. You, you know, have to remember, so, there's a difference in the sociology of the right of the client. Right. In my father's day, because as she said, the attitude towards the uh, physician was different than it would be today or than it is towards a hypnotist today. A hypnotist who is a practitioner, clinician today, has a great deal of respect, but has not got the same power hmm. that, a, uh, that a physician had 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got an entirely different sociology. And, for example, and my father was not dumb enough to do this, but he did have students who did things like saying, and that fat lady in the third row, we could probably get her to reduce. Now, try saying that in a classroom today. Yes. No way. So the sociology has changed, the vocabulary has changed, and you have, to, you have to integrate these changes. And yet at the same time, I play dad's old records with the older vocabulary and whatever, 
and I invariably get the students very interested because once they've heard what I just said, they can listen to the old and mentally say, well, I, I changed this a little bit, but his mannerism, his delivery, is this, that, and the other thing, I'd ape that because that is unchanging. So, right. So the semantics definitely change. And just like fashion, semantics seems to do a rotation too, because if you look at slang, you know, now things are fat, you know, when things are, um, you know, uh, the word gay has totally recycled back in, you know, so there's so many different words that were faux pas at some point, and now they're, they're good, or, or vice versa. And it's like, I have to ask sometimes, I, now I'm feeling old, because I have to say, what do you mean? <laughs> so when I listen to, I used to teach, so I, I was around kids more, but um, <clears throat> so working with different types of hypnotherapy, different techniques, you know, whether some Almanian and how else would you bring in and, and resolve the issues, you know, working with pain, you know, uh, uh, self, some self hypnosis, which in Dave's book, he refers to as auto-suggestion. Some other things are um, some hypnosis with kids, some techniques that to use with kids. So we'll be touching on a lot of the different subjects. What, wh how does it get used in dentistry? <clears throat> how can you and a dentist work together, you know, to, to uh, solve some of their problems? And, you know, they don't have time to go and resolve bruxism and what that goes back to. But it's great if they can refer to you. How to, how to build that. Uh, so there's, and, and much more. So those are just some of the topics that we're going to hit on. And, uh, and, and get a combination of lecture, discussion. We're big on discussion. A lecture, discussion, and, um, and some demo and practice. So a combination of all those things. So it, it's, it's interesting because each class comes out a little different based on what your interests are also. So we're hoping to see you there. Come with your questions and your thoughts. That sounds fantastic. I, I do want to loop back for a second to the jazz conversation because I think it really fits with the, the way I teach hypnosis and the, the way I know you guys teach hypnosis. There's, there's a quote, I don't know it exact. I've got to, I've got to learn this quote exact because I love it. John Coltrane had this guy come up to him. So John Coltrane's a, a famous jazz musician for those at home if you don't know. And he had this, this hip young guy come up to him when he was doing a gig in Harlem. And he's like, yeah, man, Coltrane, teach me how to play the jazz. I want to play like you. He goes, okay, go home. Learn your chords. Learn your theory. Learn all this, 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 and this, and all this heavy stuff of, of the past. Because like, no, 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 man, I want to learn how to play jazz like you. Just being able to be free, jump from this to that, and play. It's like, well, to do that, you need to know all of the stops that you can jump in, because then you can throw everything away, and then you can play. So that you know all the different pieces, but how they fit together. You're not teaching a script of just, well, you're just going to read this all the way through you're not learning the sheet music you're not learning the script of hypnosis you're learning all the different stops you can take so you can just jump in you're not doing like the ingredients like baking the different ingredients that you need to know to to you to to put it together absolutely i took a 
I was taking piano lessons as a kid and I couldn't stand listening and reading all the classical, but I knew my notes. I knew that. And I also, I started learning, teaching myself guitar. So I, I had the chords, but then I took, I switched to jazz piano and I took it from a jazz musician where I learned all the, all the configurations of chords. And, and so I only played melody and then the chords and, and just let, that all start to come together. So I really loved that. It made me much freer to do that. So, but yeah, but you definitely have to, there are a few people that could sit down cold without knowing all that and just have it and sit down and play. But it's rare that that comes about. Well, so. the same thing shows up in science and engineering. I've had people say, well, I'm going to build it by just looking at the way we built it. And what's going to happen if something went wrong? Uh, I don't know. But if you knew why it went together that way, you'd see what you could do about it. It's the same philosophy. And I've been fortunate. I've had to follow that philosophy in aircraft, helicopters, missiles, space vehicles, military command, and then off into hypnosis and so on and so forth. And there's a, there's a commonality among all of these fields. And it comes down to what the two of you have just expressed. Yes. Now, one of the things that I have seen with waking hypnosis when I was in the Air Force was somebody pulling a gun on somebody else and the person telling them deadpan, well, for one thing, you haven't got the guts to pull the trigger, but for another thing, you've got the gun aimed over my left shoulder. And the guy immediately moved the gun. It had been aimed here. Mm. It's now pointed over there. And he kept on making the gun waver until he could get close enough to disarm the man. Weren't you that person? Yes, but I wasn't about to brag. <laughs> like it wasn't obvious over my shoulder. <laughs> um, so, I uh, a lot with that in the clinic that I, I don't induce trance, but I'll have direct communication with the subconscious with idiomotor communication while they're, they're not in trance, like an adapted version of, of Bob Swan. Uh, and, and I certainly use the Swan as well. But I've, I've played with a lot where... I, I don't do anything. I would just be like, I know party wants to talk. Show me a yes. And, and, and the person will move and I'll be like, not you. I'm not talking to you. And then the other part will. And, and it will. And you can do it straight away. So if you're like, like what you say, if you're direct and sharp and quick with it, it, it can happen. To just give us a, a very brief rundown for, for those who, are, who don't know of what the difference is with dad's three-minute routine or what's now known as the, the Dave Ellman induction compared to the other stuff that was around at the time and, and other stuff that still is around at the time with different camps. I think I can. There's thousands of inductions in the hypnosis community, but the most used, there are three that are the most used. One of the three is progressive muscle relaxation, where you just keep telling them to relax this muscle and then that muscle and the other muscle, and eventually you get so much relaxation they go into hypnosis. Uh, as one of my colleagues says, you bore them to death, and so they enter hypnosis. That's my feeling about it. 
there are people who have found uses for it, so I shouldn't be quite that dismissive, but I am. The second common one is Ericksonian, and Erickson was a superb storyteller and superb at having his story appear to be about this, but really having an implied moral over here that deals with the person's presenting problem. So we'd start telling the story, the person would get engrossed in it and begin seeing how it applied to them, and he'd do his induction that way. This takes a lot more time than what my father went for. If you've got somebody who's doing a two-hour session as a psychiatrist, the fact that it's longer doesn't matter. My father's students were all practicing doctors. Few of them were psychiatrists, but not very many. Most of them were in other branches of medicine. My father's speed came from being a stage hypnotist. But what the doctors on the committee that recruited him pointed out was that like the stage hypnotist, the physician is looking at a very small time limit to his induction. So the result is the Almanian inductions tend to concentrate on getting as deep as you can, as fast as you can. How do you do that? You do it by direct suggestion. And what you also do is you intersperse each of your steps with what amounts to a test. The test becomes a convincer. And a deepener. And a deepener. Now, is what happens. What, I've, what I usually do when I'm talking about uh, tests, deepeners, and convincers is I'll say, how many people in this room, entire room full of, of hypnotists taking the course, how many of you have had clients get up at the end of a session and say, that was a very good session, I enjoyed that, but I don't know if I was really hypnotized. And a whole <laughs> bunch of hands will go up. And I'll say, when that happens, how effective are your post-hypnotic suggestions? Eh, they're not. Now, here's how you get around that. That's my lead off into explaining that if in not only your induction, but throughout your session, you intersperse short tests that act as convincers and deepeners, your effectiveness goes way up. Sure does. That's basically how my father taught. So the DEI is based upon that philosophy. Now, when I took the course for the first time, it was probably about the third time he'd, he'd ever taught it. So I was taught to do this in, within three minutes. And I got used to doing it within three minutes. One day I'm driving along here in North Carolina. This was only, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I'm listening to a recording of my father's. And he says, I've always required my students, if they want to graduate from the course, to do the entire induction in under three minutes. But as of this class, we're getting rid of that. To finish this course, you have to be able to induce hypnosis all the way to somnambulism in under one minute. <laughs> and I was so shocked by hearing Dad say that, that I jumped. And two wheels of my car went off into the ditch. I recovered. But that's how much it shocked me. <laughs> so I decided, okay, Dad, I'm going to do that. And I found I could do it, but only after a lot of practice 
and only after going over my induction very carefully and eliminating every extraneous word. So I can do it, but it's a challenge. I then began listening and a number of recordings in my father's set fulfilled that under one minute, including a physician who did it in 58 seconds and didn't seem to, to have to take out a single word. He just was very, very efficient. And so can it be done? Yes. I find it challenging, and I blame that on the fact that I'm trying to break habit patterns. Mm. But the point is, for the modern hypnotist in a clinical setting, the difference between one minute and three minutes is trivial. Yes, it's not needed. It's, it's not needed. Stage, yes. <laughs> Clinic, no. <laughs> if you want to challenge yourself and see how good you are, it's bragging rights. Yes. <laughs> and if you think about a doctor who may have, say, not five or six patients, which is a normal, but say 10 patients in an hour, he's got to aim. Oh, he does, yes. For one or two minutes, because otherwise he can't give enough suggestions to use hypnosis to cure the presenting problem. Mm. So there are times when you need to do that. And if you want the bragging rights, go for it. You know, the difference between instant and rapid inductions is not as big as it seems because the instant induction, I mean, Dave Elman, the Dave Elman induction is considered a rapid induction. Yes. You know, it can be done in that two to four minutes. And people go, oh, I like an instant because it's seconds. Yes, it's seconds. But it's only as good as the deepeners that follow it. If you don't follow up with the deepeners, then they lose their trance and they come out of it. The shock is gone. The confusion is gone. And it's like, so, so when you actually measure the difference between them, they're probably about equal, you know, uh, as far as, you know, they're still using about that same time period to continue that deepener to get them to get to that synambulistic state, if, if that's what you're doing, yeah. you know. So, uh, so I just wanted to point it out, but the, uh, the Dave Elman induction is considered a rapid induction. And so if people are interested in finding out more about this, I know you teach this around, around the globe. You've, you've already talked about that. And I know I've certainly got you coming out to Newcastle, Australia in February 22nd and 23rd to, to teach dad's work with some recordings of dad and both of you offering your knowledge and expertise with it as well. So whereabouts in the next few months will you be around the, the world that people can uh, look at if you're in their area? And when we come to you, it's going to be a nice long day. So there'll be plenty of practice and there's plenty of practice area in your venue, which we love. We love to get people not just to demo and do the lecture, but also for you to experience it, experiencing it both as the patient at, or client and the uh, clinical person. So, um, and we're going to be doing uh, coming up, in January, we are hosting Amber Cox here, both Zoom and here in, in North Carolina, on doing a course on emotional intelligence at, with a, a module, a Monday module on how to use this and bring this into medical and corporate. So that's nice. And we're doing in January, the next week and the second weekend in January, we're doing a train the trainers 
you know, Larry's going to be 81 when we travel to Australia and I'm up there in my later 60s. And so we are looking to develop and keep the legacy going. So we're training Dave Elman trainers around the world so that they can continue this beyond us. You know, our kids are doctors, dentists, and uh, doctors, lawyers, and professors. And so nobody's interested in, in following along with the family uh, a business. And, um, and then uh, February, we're going to be um, right before you, we're going to be going down to New Zealand, where we're going to have a weekend with, with the Almonds. Uh, for, actually, it didn't end up being a weekend. It's going to be Friday and Saturday, I think the first weekend in February. And because on Friday and Saturday, because on Sunday, Helen Midas was using the same location. So <clears throat> we'll get to go to Helen's class. She'll get to come to ours. And then on Monday and Tuesday, I'll be teaching sleep talk, the grueling process of sleep talk for children. Then we come to you, Melbourne. We're going to be uh, on March 1st. We're going to be speaking one day with AHA down in Melbourne, Australia. I don't know if we're going to pop around and do any meetups with anybody there. We are going out to the bush and a, a friend's place that where we're going to feed wallabies and, and uh and uh, 30 king parrots that come down at 4.30 in the morning to feed. So that should be interesting. And then we'll be at HypnoBiz Australia. In June of, of uh, 2020, we'll be spending the month in the UK. And we will be teaching in Sudbury, England, up above London. We'll be in Cardiff in, in Wales. We'll be in Edinburgh in Scotland. And then we're going to be in both Belfast and Dublin. So it'll be a full UK on the opposite side of the road month. Got to be careful crossing that, crossing the street. <laughs> Is there a website with links and dates for that, that if they can check out, if that's flagged for them as something they want to check out? That's going to be developed. But if you check back, if you check back with with me or ask me, um, but they're developing that website now, and I'm going to be putting up the dates and the contact information on our website, Dave Elman Hypnosis Institute. Excellent. And so uh, dot com. So if you check there, you can see where we're going to be going, and um, and there will be uh, I, I I didn't they were just coming up with a uh, domain that they were going to use for scheduling for the UK. Excellent. But feel free to ask us and we will be periodically. I go up there and, and re put in all the, the dates on the front page. Yeah. So. Well, thank you both for your time today. I've, I've loved having a chat with you and I'm sure the people at home would have really enjoyed hearing some of these stories and should be excited to, to come check you out when you're, you're here or in Europe or wherever it is that is near them. Uh, We're so excited. And Larry, you're going to leave the photo with the, from Boston at home, right? <laughs> no, I don't even know where it is anymore. It was in the pile of pictures you showed the kids. They didn't want it. <laughs> oh, I did show it to them. Yes. You showed it. To, well, you, you, you tried to show it to them. Nobody wanted a copy of it. <laughs> um, so, but thank you. We are so looking forward to, um, to coming to, to Australia and hope that you can, and New Zealand and, and England, hope you can all join us 
And um, you can always get in trouble. In trouble. You can also get in touch with Lance. Probably in trouble too. And uh, we hope we hope you can join us somewhere because uh, we're not sure how long we're going to travel. This might. This is probably. This is our last trip to Australia, and probably our last trip to the UK. So uh, we've been to London, uh, uh, England. I think this will be the fourth or fifth time. So this is it because we're going to start. People ask us, you know, we get phone calls from from telemarketers asking where we'd like to go on vacation, and they said home <laughs> <laughs> because we haven't been there. <laughs> we'd like oh, we'd yeah. like to see it. By so, the way, I, I really have to say I have so much enjoyed working with you this afternoon. We all had a wonderful time. Yep. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and perhaps learned something new. If you did, I'd love for you to subscribe or drop a review on whatever favorite podcast you have. Or if you've been enjoying the video versions on YouTube or Facebook, do it there. If something really did click home for you with this episode, perhaps it could benefit one of your friends or family. If so, it'd really help if you shared this on your social medias. Until next time, you've been listening to Akasha Talks with Lance Baker.